Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, missionary to Zimbabwe, Africa, sent out of Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. My guest today is 28-year veteran missionary to Ukraine, Brother Chris Rue. Brother Rue has had a lengthy, fruitful, and thoughtful ministry in Eastern Europe that stretches back to a time shortly after the fall of the Soviet Union, a particularly exciting time in terms of evangelistic openness and opportunity. One of the reasons that I wanted to have this conversation with Brother Rue is for the fact that he is thinking deeply about biblical missionary methods and trying to employ these methods practically in the field where he is serving. But the methodological questions will have to wait for the second installment of this interview. In part one, Brother Rue traces his conversion and call to Ukraine at length, including some amazing stories of how God grew his faith and gave supernatural direction and guidance to get him to the very place that he's labored for more than two decades. With that introduction, here's part one of my conversation with missionary Chris Rue. Brother Rue, I've been looking forward to the opportunity to talk with you about the work in Ukraine. Um, I bumped into you many years ago in Germany, of all places. I don't know if you even recall that encounter, but but I got to see your ministry presentation many years ago at a church in Florida, and you were actually interacting. I, I don't know how how many of the, the folks in the pews appreciated the substance of, of some of the the uh, missions methods that you were interacting with, even in your presentation. But it really provoked me those many years ago to think, to try to think a little bit more biblically and and more critically about um, our methods in missions and how to go about it in, in scriptural terms and just to be, to think carefully about our pattern for mission work. And I want to talk to you about some of those things. But before we get into some of those methodological questions I'd like for you to tell us a little bit about how the Lord got you to the Ukraine. So when did you receive the Lord as your Savior, and how did God deal with you about missions in Eastern Europe? Okay, yeah, I was saved as a uh, a young boy in Cincinnati, Ohio. Um, my family had been led to Christ. Well, they, they got saved from the ministry of John Rawlings at Landmark Baptist Temple, and so my grand, both of my grandfathers after the war got saved. Uh, they raised their families to a certain degree in, with uh, the Christian home. And then on both sides of my family, the tragedy struck. Uh, my grandfather uh, had a heart attack right after singing a special. Oh, wow. And uh, he sang, have a little talk with Jesus. And then he had one. And he, after that, he went out into the foyer and, and just sat down next to the drinking fountain and the Lord took him home. What a way to go out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, you, I could think of worse ways. <laughs> <laughs> so, but it left, you know, left a mother and, you know, and three kids and then plus one adopted son. He came back after the war, just a changed man. And so he adopted a, a boy who was my uncle, Uncle Terry. And then, uh, so tragedy hit that side. I guess my mother was uh, 16 at the time. And then my grandfather on my dad's side came back after the war. He was saved at Landmark at a B.R. Lakin meeting. Wow. And uh, so he w- they were doing well. And then they tragedy hit that side of the family whenever he was out on visitation. 
with my grandmother and they were at the bottom of a hill at a stoplight and then a car of uh, full of drunk drivers. I mean, drunks, they just, they, they plowed into them so hard that she went through the back window. Um, she was pronounced dead at the hospital, but actually, you know, came back. And it was one of those interesting stories that, uh, you know, she, you know, she was clinically pronounced dead for several minutes. And she said she saw her mother and, you know, she was ready to go. Hmm. And her mom said, it's not your time yet. You have to raise your, your, your children and then you'll come. And so that's the story, you know. Sure. And that's pretty much how it happened, too. But um, she had a lot of doctor bills and my grandfather was just old school. He would never take a handout. So he worked a lot of jobs. And then I guess my mom and dad met um, at church in, with those kind of circumstances. And then they, they kind of had to get married, if you know what I mean. And uh, so Landmark Baptist Temple had a lot of influence on both sides of the family. And even though my mom and dad during those 60s years were not living a Christian life, they had both backslid at, during the Vietnam era. My, my father went off into the Marines and came back different, I'm told. And um, so anyway, there was always the church that was there. And so my mother, they, they were divorced later. And my mother just put me on a bus and that's when we always had chick tracks and I went to camp, you know, and I would hear uh, at Camp Chautauqua hear, you know, Dr. Ruckman and I grew up with John Rawlings and, you know, that kind of a thing. And somebody, uh, for some reason had, I don't know, I guess that you will, I know it was the Lord, but somebody had a big burden for me that I should go to Christian school. And so several families in the church um, sponsored me Amen. to go to Christian school. And uh, I think that that made a huge difference wow. in, in my life. Looking back and looking at everybody else that I grew up with in the similar circumstances um, and other family members, I realized if there was one thing that was different about my upbringing as opposed to theirs, it was the Word of God that I got and the prayers, obviously, that I got going to that Christian school. And so, um, so yeah, I, I was saved young, doubted my salvation, was kind of uh, um, moved a lot. I think I went to 12 schools in 12 years. And in, um, because of just mom and dad always fighting out the custody battles, I remember one year in particular, I went to four different schools. And so that was good preparation for the mission field. I mean, I just didn't have a lot of, you know, deep roots anywhere and had to adapt everywhere I went, you know. Right. And I, you know, I can, looking back, I can see the Lord was, was doing this, you know. So uh, at the age of 14, I became very bitter about the family thing with the divorce and the fighting and all of that. And so I just, I had little, little sparks of revival in my life. And we, I joke with a couple of friends that it was kind of hard to even live as a Christian in a Christian school <laughs> back in the day. But we would try and had little sparks of revival from time to time. But uh, yeah, I got bitter. And then uh, I ended up getting in so much trouble that my mother took me out of Christian school and I went to a public school. And then it just got really bad. Uh, a lot of drugs, music, um, the, the rock and roll whole thing. So I, um, I told everybody I was an atheist to get them, you know, Christians off my back and leave me alone because they really didn't know how to answer that. 
And so I lived like that for seven years. And by the end of that period of time, um, I wasn't sure if I lost my salvation, wasn't sure if I ever had it, wasn't sure if I could get it back. And uh, the Lord had just, he'd been dealing with me. And so I remember uh, praying the sinner's prayer as young as eight, doubting a little bit and wanting to make sure at 11. I've prayed the sinner's prayer many times and believed on Christ and red chick tracks and all of those things. But um, the more sensational, emotional experience was when I got right. And uh, by this time I was 21. Um, you know, there was a lot of history there and a whole, you know, I just remember the Lord dealing with me. It, it was usually about once a year, maybe more in odd ways, you know, and every time I knew he was after me, you know, <laughs> and just funny things. One story in particular, uh, you know, there was quite a few of them, but one in particular was the Lord was convicting me and uh, and this woman showed up at my door. I was renting an apartment, playing in a band, and uh, it was a Sunday. And she shows up at my doorstep and, and, and she says, uh, you don't know me. But um, she said, this may sound crazy to you. But she said, I just got saved last week. And... I'm going to church, and she said, um, you know, it's Sunday, and I, I, I felt like I shouldn't go to church without inviting somebody to go with me, and you have to understand, this is like a, th this is a, an apartment complex of like a thousand <laughs> apartments, and I'm on like the fourth or fifth floor, <laughs> you know, out of all the doors that she could have knocked on, she said, I just prayed and asked God to show me who I should invite to church. And so here they are, knock, she's knocking on my door. And so it's just things like that, you know, that the Lord, I, he made it very clear that he was pursuing me. And, you know, so uh, I got right on February the 18th, 1989 and uh, at, a, at a meeting and, and I went home and I thought, you know, I probably should start praying. And so I tried to pray and then I thought well I need to probably get on my knees to pray <laughs> and uh, and I prayed and said some kind of a prayer I don't remember what it was I just remember laying back down and thinking and, and then it was like the devil showed up and remember when you did this and you remember yeah. when you said this and you blasphemed the Holy Ghost and you did this I I was I was afraid and I realized I can't do this if I don't know that I'm saved. And so I, uh, I prayed again and I was just like, God, I got to know that I'm saved. I, ca I can't live this life and not know. And so I got up and went to church the next morning, Sunday morning. And my grandmother was waiting for me at the door, um, over where I used to go to school. It was the, um, where boys learn to do woodworking and stuff. Um, Shop. Shop, yeah. I used to take shop class. Mm -hmm. And uh, Rawlings, uh, Harold Rawlings was actually the teacher down there. My parents said, well, why don't you go to this class? So I headed down there. My grandmother's waiting for me. And uh, to my shame, I got up that morning and I thought, wow, I don't have a Bible because I had thrown mine away in my bitterness. And my grandmother's standing there waiting for me to give me my Bible back. So that was 
it was neat. Amen. You know, and uh, so I go in there and sit down and, you know, he gets up to, to teach the lesson and he opens up to John chapter three and almost his uh, introductory words verbatim was, it's through this passage that we can know that we're saved. And, it, you know, so uh, that morning I, I experienced the first time the assurance of salvation and the fullness of the Holy Spirit. I got to the end of it and it was just like, okay, if it's that simple, Lord, then I just, I believe it and I accept it. And then the peace that passes all understanding, I've had it ever, ever since. Amen. And so that's, um, my, I immediately began to fell in love with Jesus Christ and fell in love with the Bible and just started reading and, and all of the old desires and ambitions, my I had a business ambition. I had uh, I was going to the college conservatory preparatory department for playing the guitar, and I just the 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 more time went by, all of those ambitions just started to disappear, and all I wanted to do was just preach and win souls. And yeah. it's almost immediately God put me in. I don't know how this happens. It's not a good thing. I, I, you know, it was maybe good for me at the time, but it's not the norm. But somehow I became a teacher of a Sunday school class and I wasn't even, a, you know, it was, you know, and it just forced me to, to teach and I got involved with the bus ministry and, uh, you know, saw people get saved and it was just, it was great. And, uh, you know, surrendered everything to the Lord and, and then he began, he reminded me of a call to preach and he reminded me of that that time when I was an eight-year-old boy at a Sunday school class. And uh, so I, I realized I needed to go to school. And there was a lot of uh, uncertainty about where to go to school. You know, there was, I, I didn't, I started reading um, some of Dr. Ruckman's material. And I, I was reading that because my my dad had made a mention about him. He, he re really respected him. And I, and so I, I got some of his books. And then I realized, oh, this guy's got something He's got he's got a uh, some kind of an attitude about this King James issue, <laughs> and uh, so I started learning a little bit about that, and uh, so yeah, I ended up going to PBI. I uh, prayed about it, and I had a couple of options: people pushing in this direction, and in another. Um, so I ended up praying, and the Lord gave me peace about going to PBI. I know that you know that might be. Some people might think the Holy Spirit would never lead somebody to go to PBI, but I'll just, I think I know the Lord and I think that he did tell me to go. And so I have no regrets there. So uh, it was, somebody gave me the advice almost immediately in my first year. And they said, don't wait till you graduate to begin praying about what God would have you to do. Hmm. And he said, they said, start now, your first year. And so I began praying and asking God, I'd get up early, 4.30 in the morning before work, read the scriptures and pray. And it was during that time that I believe God called me to be a missionary. Amen. And um, it just, you know, the verse that he used there in Proverbs 24, where, you know, prepare thy work without, make it fit for thyself in the field. And that, those words in the field just hit me, you know. And so... And afterwards, build thine house because I was wanting to go into real estate and build your house. It was just, I don't know, it just spoke to me. Sure. And uh, so I began praying uh, where? And it was um, about a little bit later 
that year, uh, uh, Ricky Bolick came through during our graduation time, and he had been a missionary in Germany, uh, had a mental breakdown. He came out of that, and he preached at the graduation, and uh, I mean, the Lord, the power of God was on him. And I had already felt like the Lord was pushing me towards and leading me towards uh, the former Soviet Union. And he had been up in, in through there and through Russia. And so I said, look, I'm, I believe God's called me to be a missionary. And I think it's to the somewhere in the former Soviet Union, but I don't know where yet. And he said, um, well, we're looking for a missionary right now. Uh, things are opening up in Bulgaria. And he says, call this, this number, talk to this preacher. So I, I called him. He said, you know, son, are you, pray, are you called? I said, uh, yes, sir. Um, called to preach? Yes, sir. You called to be a missionary? Yes, sir. And he said, well, get up here. We're going to have a missions conference, and your support will be ready for you when you get here. Brother Potter. Yes. <laughs> and I said, well, <laughs> I believe God called me to go to school, and I really don't feel like I'm ready for that. I said, I think i got to finish school. He said, well, you can forget that, and uh, we need someone to go now. And I said, well, let me pray about it, and I'll call you back. And I, I pr did pray about it, and I, I, I said, no, it's, I'm not the guy. And they had put out some brochures, you know, the unknown missionary. They were looking for somebody to go. Well, I did go up to the missions conference, and the Lord spoke to me at that time about um, going to Bulgaria um, in that meeting. And I really, really felt like the Lord wanted me to go and that he was going to get me there. Um, was Brother Cheatwood in that meeting by chance? Or? No, he was on the field. He, he, he had already there. left uh, Turkey and he had already got, he stopped in, in Bulgaria there. And things were getting started. That work was getting started back then. So um, we had an amazing time. In that conference, I think the Lord was really calling people, dealing with people then. And uh, but I went back and was working full time job, paying my bills, tithing, giving to missions. But I just couldn't save any money for this ticket. So it's kind of a neat story. I've told it in a lot of churches, not all, but you know, a lot of churches that I looked into the ticket. It was eight hundred and thirty-seven dollars, you know, and. Uh, have you heard this? No. No? No. Um, so the year went by, and Brother Bullock called me, and he said, we have somebody from the children's home that wants to visit us, and we need you know, uh, an adult to take him. He was 17, and he did, needed someone who, who could help him on the flight. And he said, are you going? And I said, I, I, brother, I really thought that God dealt with me and, and wanted me to go, but I haven't been able to save any money to go. And he said, well, maybe you need to go on faith. And I just, that, that didn't make any sense to me. I just, he said, brother, he said, I know the charismatics have twisted the verses, but if that was God that put that in your heart, you need to learn to trust him with that. You need to put it back on him. And trust him, and I, my, you know, my my wires in my brain were short circuiting, and you know, sparks were flying, and uh, he kind of chuckled and laughed, and I, I didn't think it was funny <laughs> because this was very serious to me, you know. I was serious about serving the Lord, and he's over there laughing at me, 
because I didn't have really a clue what he was talking about. <laughs> I just figured if I had a if I had a ticket, I'll go. And he said, "Brother, try it. It works." So I got off the phone, went into my little room where I pray, got on my knees, and started juggling money. You know, in in my mind, thinking if I can do put this here or there. Long story short, I got that price down to $500. And I asked God, I said, God, I need $500. And got up, I mean, nothing happened. I didn't feel, you know, anything. And went to work and I got home that afternoon. I was kind of discouraged. And I got a letter in the mail from a friend in Cincinnati. And I had told him back in Christmas time that I was praying about going on a missions trip that summer. And he wrote me and said, uh, you mentioned something about going to the mission field. And in that letter was a check for $500. Praise the Lord. The very next day. And he's and it, with just one little note saying, you know, get to the field. And I, you know, I took a fit. <laughs> yeah. I had a great time. Boy, talking about growing your faith. That yeah. Grow your faith. It was awesome. But, you know, it really kicked in like two days later. And I had a friend, we grew up together. His name was Hassan. His dad was a sniper in Saddam Hussein's arm, army. And um, we grew, you know, we, we were kind of hooligans together. <laughs> and uh, he, got, he got right after I got right with the Lord. Um, and then he called me two days later after this. And he said... Uh, you mentioned something up here during Christmas time about you were going to go to visit a mission field. Are you going to go? And I said, well, looks like it. I think I'll be able to get a ticket. I don't know what I'll live on, <laughs> but, you know, it looks like God's in this thing. And he said, well, you didn't know this, but I've been saving for your trip ever since Christmas. And he's, He'd been working in the restaurant industry, comes home, and he just said, I just was throwing money in a box for you all these months. And he said, I, I got it started adding up. He said, I thought I'd count it tonight for the first time, and it came to $838. Like $1 more than the plane ticket, you know, and with and I figured God took care of the, the, the bank fees or the stamp or whatever. And um, and it was the Lord. The Lord was teaching me that you don't have to juggle money. You don't have to try to figure it out, you know, God's going to take care of us. And I've always had to look back at that during the hard times and just, you know, and say, God's going to get us through. So, you know, so anyway, I uh, went to Bulgaria. It was great. Awesome time to be on the mission field. And, but there was something that was between the missionaries called to Bulgaria. I loved the people. But there was not that there was a not a connection like they had, and um, we were preaching on the street, and a woman comes up to us and with her husband, and he was a captain of a ship, in, on the in the Black Sea Fleet in Odessa, and she was saved, and she was just begging us to come to Ukraine, oh, wow. just begging us with tears. I mean, you know, these are very uh, educated, cultured people. What year is this? This was nineteen ninety two. So the Soviet Union had just fallen. Right. Right. Yeah. And so we we met every morning. We read the scriptures together. There was a group of missionaries, Brother Bolick, a guy named Jeff Stewart. I don't know whatever happened to him. Uh, Richard Mayer was there. Yeah. 
and then um, and myself, and then there was a national guy he'd always hang around. He was a translator named Mitko. And we preached with them in the gypsy villages and met up with the Gagawuzi during that time, and the work there just flourished after that. But we were praying every morning about what God would have us to do, and, and that day read the scriptures, prayed, and then we'd hit the streets, preach on the streets sometimes all day long, and you just get a new crowd every 15, 20 minutes, you know. And you could just, as long as your voice didn't give out, you could, we just passed out all these Gospels. John had throngs, I mean, just people thronging us and, and for, for, for the scriptures. It was just a great, great time. I wish it was that way today. But that's when this woman, her name was Tatiana, she was begging us to come to Ukraine and we just couldn't get away from her tears. And then we, she gave us an address and we thought, well, how do we, how do we even do this? And we found out that Ukraine had changed its laws just the week prior. <laughs> that you could uh, just enter the country, pay 50 bucks with a, and get a tourist visa. So um, we prayed about it. And out of our group, I was just like, yeah, I, I want to go. And Jeff Stewart was like, yeah, I want to go. So we got on a, we had to change clothes in the box of New Testaments. We got on a boat, found a boat, and we just sailed to, to Odessa. And then God had a had a person. I got in line to get a visa, that tourist visa. And this is weird. I never really could fully understand this. But we were standing in line, and Jeff was. He said, "Look, look at what number they're going to give you, brother." And I got number six six six. So it was July the fourth, nineteen ninety two, on our Independence Day. And I looked down at that, and saw a six six six. I mean, I was having the time of my life. You know, and then it was like the devil said, I know you're here too, buddy. It's what it felt like. Sure. I never could figure it out after that. <laughs> but a couple of times I thought, well, maybe God was warning me, don't come here. <laughs> but it, it wasn't that way. We Every step of the way, uh, we got off at the port. We found uh, some people. We gave them some New Testaments. They found us a taxi, got a taxi. We were trying to find a telephone. We found a phone booth, the only phone booth, tried to make contact, couldn't make contact. And at every step of the way, there was people that spoke enough English that we could get from the port to that post office to make a call from the post office to a tram, from the tram to the train. You know, from a train, we got on this uh, electric train and we rode it for, you know, two hours where no American had ever been. <laughs> and uh, we got off coincidentally at the major bus hub and that's where we've been ministering now for all these years but we got off the bus and we were showing these people the, the the address and they just said keep going you know get on oh wait i'm sorry we got off the train and they said you need to get on that bus that bus is leaving they were like you hurry hurry so we ran got on that bus and we just rode that bus it seemed like forever and it was just hot and dripping sweat it, the, the doors, I mean, it was so packed that the doors were closing on my shoulders. People were screaming, yelling, you know, all this stuff. And so we went down the road and um, we uh, rode that bus, I guess, for another hour and a half. And people got off and it got down to the very, very end of the line. There was only one young man left. Everybody was gone. We kept, you know, using sign language and showed uh, the address and they said, keep going, keep going, keep going. And then there was this young man, real tall guy. He had on a hat. He had on a hat that said USA. 
<laughs> so we walked up to him. We showed him the address. We shrugged our shoulders. You know, where do we go? And he got a puzzled look on his face. And he said, sin. It was his address. It was. No. It kidding. was his mother. He was the son of the woman. And he was on the bus. And it was like the Lord took us all the way from Bulgaria and just led us by the hand all the way to her address. It was amazing, you know, just that kind of stuff all along the way. Wow. And uh, so then we met up with some other, he, they, get, they put us in contact with some other preachers. Some of them were Pentecostal leaning, some of them were Union Baptists, and we preached all over the place for three days. They snuck us across the border during that war in Prednestrovia, and we preached to a bunch of refugees, and they were all holed up in this place. <laughs> it was wild, you know. And uh, it was during that time I was like, I found God's will. I mean, this is it. This is it, man. <laughs> Couldn't doubt it at that point. <laughs> so we had uh, a great three days, and the people in, in, in Bulgaria, they thought we dropped off the face of the earth. I mean, they hadn't heard from us in three days. And so we went back there, and we, you know, it was a, you know, I'm not a charismatic or a Pentecostal by any stretch of the imagination but we came back and told them all these things that the Lord had done and we had a prayer meeting there that I was I'll just put it this way it was a very rare meeting and uh, the Lord showed up in the sense that his presence was very very real and you just felt like okay this is something that God is in that's all you know you know and so it was during that time I was praying and I was asking God, I said, you know, I've got a month left and I'd really, really like to go back to Ukraine. So I was privately praying, asking God to let me go back. I just didn't know how to make that work. I was the lowest, you know, a low guy on the totem pole there. And uh, so we show up for a prayer meeting at seven o'clock one morning and Brother Bullock says, you wouldn't believe who called me last night and I said who and he said Dr. Ruckman called me and I said yeah why he said well he had some meetings planned in Romania and they all fell through and he's got this week open and he said he'd like to come over here and he said it and Brother Bullock said you know I thought about it and after seeing the way the Lord's been moving in in, in not so much here in Bulgaria but there in, in, in Ukraine he said, Brother Rue, I think that we need to go to Ukraine and take Dr. Ruckman with us there. Wow. And so the Lord answered my There's prayer. Your answer, yeah. I got to go back. Only this time I got to go back with Dr. Ruckman. What an amazing thing. And uh, so he saw the need. He came back and, and raised a bunch of money for Bibles. He saw the big need for Bibles. We, he, he preached. We got him in jails and, and, and uh, what do you call it? They call them sanatoriums. They're resort, health resort places, and we churches and preached all over the place. But he came back to the United States and raised a bunch of money for Bibles. And um, so that's kind of how the work there with uh, Brother Richard Mayer, because he was in Bulgaria, and I went back to finish my... I, I stayed awake all night one night and prayed about whether I should stay or go go back and finish school it was hard I really wanted to stay and uh, others were saying brother 
you need to stay. You'll figure out your education, you know, as you go. And so I, I, I prayed all night one night. The Lord said I needed to go back and finish PBI. Um, uh, Brother Bullock got the, the ball rolling about getting a bunch of Bibles printed. And then he was called back to the United States. And so he went and got Brother Mayer from Bulgaria and it took him over to Ukraine. He f finished that up and then I, f I finished my third year and I found out why God wanted me to go back because that's when I found my wife. <laughs> Very important piece. Very important piece, yeah. yeah, absolutely. So I got we, we, I graduated on a Friday, um, got to preach Saturday, went to church Sunday, got married Monday. <laughs> we had one month as a normal couple and I scheduled a couple of meetings. Uh, I think it was 10, <laughs> 10 total meetings. And then that was what? That was May, so yeah, June. So we went July, August, September, October, and we left like the first couple of days of November. 93, 94. It, it was uh, 93. 93. Mm -hmm. So go back to those early days when you made your, when, when, you, when you landed in the Ukraine to stay as a missionary. Um, did you still, you were still seeing that that same openness that you had seen the year before, the same? Yeah, it was a, that was also a kind of a strange transitional time because my third year of school, I, there was things going on. I was a little bit uneasy about some things, um, mostly because of problems between different camps back in the United States. Um, I was a little concerned about that and I met through um, Ed Keogh. He had come back from Australia and he was out in front of the, the church there and there he said, he said, Brother Rue, because he knew I was going to go to, the, to, to Ukraine, he said, I met up with these Russian-speaking kids and he said, um, you know, we need to go... He said, I found out that they live right down the street down here. So this is in this is in Pensacola. OK, OK. This was in Pensacola. I'm going to I'm going to back up just a little sure, bit. Sure. My third year and I'm on, you know, I'm on my way to Ukraine. I've got some concerns about some things. Uh, I won't go into detail about sure. it, but um, I had some concerns and then this happened. So I, we go and we meet. There's a guy down the street with his wife. Her name was Lena. His name was Gennady Denisenko. And he was from Russia. And so my objective at that point was to win him to Christ. <laughs> and so I just, I feigned myself to be a student, but my brain, you know, uh, being a very small brain, <laughs> I couldn't really hack uh, my third year Greek, a year of Hebrew, the rest of the load, and Russian at the same time. I was just, you know, getting what I could only so that I could witness to him. So every Friday while everybody else was playing hockey, I would go over there and, and have Russian lessons. And then he got saved. Amen. And when he got saved, he, um, he was saying, my family, my country, we need this. He said, would you consider not going to Ukraine and go to Russia instead? And I said, well, I'll pray about it. 
Well, I had another friend at, at going to school at that time, and his name was Adam Trosclair. He's down in in, um, in New Orleans, and his brother was a missionary in Germany, David Trosclair, and he was in Nuremberg. And David Trosclair had been taking humanitarian aid and sneaking Bibles in for even before the wall came down. And he had made some contacts with some um, with pastors over there in, in, in Russia. And uh, he was also giving a push at that time. I had heard that there was something you know going on. There was some movement with Russia. And so uh, I met him. He came back for a time. I met him, and then the it was just kind of strange. Uh, you know, Gennady was asking me, he said, look, I've got a house. You can live in my house. <laughs> Just witness to my family, witness to my friends. I got a house. And then I went to school one night and I sat next to Adam and I said, you know, by the way, um, where where does your brother go? I heard that, you know, your brother David has been, he's flown and he's driven into Russia. And, you know, Gennady said that he was from a big city called Krasnodar. And so... He says, uh, Adam says, well, he's going to some place called Kra Kra. I said, Krasnodar? <laughs> he said, yeah, that's the city. And so I thought, that's interesting. And the Lord had given me this scripture out of Isaiah 45 about he's open, unto, you know, he's talking to Cyrus, but I was just reading it one day and it was really, you know, kind of came off the page and is open unto you these two-leaved gates and the gates shall not be shut you know and I'm thinking I can go to Ukraine or go to Russia it, it was both doors were very open hmm. and and then so Gennady says yeah I've got a got a house you can live in the house and then I talked to David and he says yeah man there's a church over there and they need a pastor they really need some some sound doctrine or whatever and he said we'll help you he said we'll help you I need somebody to take and drive in to, uh, so I, I ended up going to, to, to Germany first on the way. Mm -hmm. we get, we're, we're in Germany, and this, this guy meets me at the airport. His name is, is uh, um, Thomas Castellaw. <laughs> and he had just gotten out of the military. He just got married to uh, Angela, Angelica. And uh, so my wife, by this time, is, is very pregnant, and we were kamikazes for Christ. We got a birthing kit, and we just figured we'd wing it. <laughs> we were going to go to the mission field, you know, and God's going to take care of us. And so um, so David sat me down, David trusts Claire, and he said, Look, brother, your wife will never make the trip. She'll never make it. You know, the roads are so bad. And he said, You know, why don't you just stay here? Um, you can teach a missions class. There's stuff to do. I need somebody to, to take humanitarian aid down into this orphanage in Russia. So um, we listened to his advice, and we ended up having my firstborn son there in Germany. I taught a missions class, which I knew nothing about missions. And all I prayed was that, God, it would be great if you would just call someone out of this missions class. That was my prayer. And so... Or the Castellol, praise the Lord, ended up getting called uh, during that time. And he and I took a trip into Krasnodar with all this humanitarian aid during a, during a, a freak blizzard, a, a winter storm. 
And I'm so glad that he had some military training and he had knew some things about mechanics because I, I don't know that we would have made it <laughs> had he not known how to bleed those diesel fuel lines. It was, it was kind of crazy. But um, the interesting thing is, and something I never could totally figure out, was um, we drove in in the middle of the night. It's a city of 600,000 people. We parked the truck. And he went off to find a phone because he spoke German and this guy named, I think it was Alexei, the, the head of the orphanage, he spoke German because nobody spoke English. And we didn't speak Russian really. So he goes off and finds a phone, makes the phone call. And I, I'm standing, you know, manning the truck so that nobody breaks into the truck. And I'm, I'm constantly trying to read Russian words, you know, just practicing my Russian and everything. And I look up and I see this sign and it says Frunza. And I'm thinking, I know that word. I've heard that word. And I went, I thought, you know, did I, didn't I write that word down somewhere? And so I went and I got my little notebook. And, I, and it turns out that in, a, in, in like 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock in the middle of, of the night, of a city of 600,000 people, we parked right in front of Gennady's house. <laughs> I'm not making this up, brother. I go and I get this notebook, and I'm like, yeah, it's Frunza. Frunza 5-something. I go and I... It's like right there. <laughs> and I go up, but right before we were getting ready to go, then he calls me and said, look, my mother freaked out. She rented out the house. The house is not available for you. Um, that fell through. Right about the time we had all of our stuff, we had a thousand pounds of supplies, half a ton of supplies to go into, in, into Russia. And uh, the truck came back and the guy said, man, I can't believe it, but we're exactly a, a thousand pounds overweight. And I was praying about it. And so it, it was, the strange thing was, it was as if all the Lord wanted us to do was to witness to his family and his friends which uh, Brother Castello and I, we did. We, we went, met up with uh, the guy renting his house, gave him the gospel, met up with Gennady's mom, gave her the gospel, met up with his friend that he had talked about, spent the day, gave them the gospel, and then the Lord was like, you know, you're done. So we went back to Germany. Um, the Lord had changed our plans, redirected us, and he had given us some scripture about... Um, Turn us, you know, oh Lord. And so we were turned. And uh, I preached in some refugee camps there, people that were immigrating to, to Germany. And then, um, and then we finally went. And what it was like, uh, it was very poor. The whole system had collapsed. Hyperinflation had hit. It kept going up, kept going up. Availability of goods, there were, there were none. There were lots of power struggles between the police, the military, the politicians, uh, stores. The mafia was growing up. Every young man wanted to be a mafioso. Mm. Those were their role models, people with power, because they really, I think it was Churchill who said that those people respect nothing more than power and despise nothing more than, than weakness. And so it were, you know, the mafia was the role models for the young men. It was a really, really bad time of lawlessness. 
there was no work, all the factories shut down, and everybody had like a guilt complex because of their whole, entire lives. They thought they were superior to those you know, American capitalists who you know who practiced what they called speculation, selling something at buying something at one price and selling it for another. I mean, you could be sent to the gulags for for that. You know, you'd be arrested, and you know they had the word speculante. You know, if you were caught speculating, wow. I mean, you were the, you were an enemy of the people. And so everybody with these uh, higher educations are now in the local marketplace in the bazaar, practicing that very thing. You know, trying to make ends meet, and just it was a a wild time. The banks were closing their doors. There were lines out. You know. Around the block, there were. If you saw a line at the market, you stood in it because even if you couldn't see it, because there would be a crowd, like a, a truck would back up, they'd open the doors, and there'd be a crowd around this truck, and you just stand in line, and you didn't know what for because they had something to buy, you know. And uh, so it was. It was a rough time. It was a hard time on people economically. They were. Unsure. There, the, the good thing about it was they were very open to the West. They were very open to the United States. They still thought they were somehow superior, and they still felt like, for some reason, what had happened to them, it was our fault. You know, we had orchestrated, and we won. And so there was some kind of a respect there. They did uh, want anything that was from the West, and so that opened a lot of doors. Um, the good side of going so quickly, yet underfunded, the good side was that we were there during that time, and people were getting saved every week. Wow. We had visitors every week. Dr. Ruckman had put sent that money that we could get those Bibles, and I went back to uh, Razdelnaya, put up some posters, had these posters printed, put them up. Brother Mayor helped me uh, get those posters up and uh, advertised at a church meeting. And instantly, 80 people. The next week, 100 people. You know, and so it was like that instantly. Just started passing out Bibles and winning souls to Christ. And, and uh, so that part of it was really, really good. The, looking back, the, the negative side of it was that if I had had the support and the money back then, we could have bought land for nothing. We could, there were buildings, whole buildings that you could have bought for like $2,000, you know, with lots of property. And we, we, we did miss that, sadly, you know. But, um, but another on today, whenever I speak to people over there and they, strangers, and we talk and they say, oh, you know. They pick up on my accent, which I don't care who you are. Sure. You're going to have an accent. Yeah. You know, sometimes Americans like to romanticize the <laughs> missionaries. Oh, he speaks without an accent. And no, you don't. <laughs> and, uh, but it's cool. You know, it's just like a, a guy from Australia or yeah. Great Britain comes over here and he preaches. And, oh, he's like this great preacher. And it's the same thing over there. The novelty. Know, the novelty. Yeah. You're kind of exotic or something, you know. This, this, you know, our pastor has this uh, foreign accent, you know, it's just, it's... so anyway, they pick up on the accent and we talk and then, and then, you know, why are you here? And that's always the perfect opportunity to, to talk to them and open the door about the Lord. And, um, but usually what really has a profound effect on 
people that are already middle-aged as I just say, yeah, I lived through the early 90s with you. Oh, wow. And whenever, you, whenever I say that, they realize that, you know, we're the real deal. That we weren't here for... Wow. Yeah. It, it, it has an effect. So, do you think over the years, in proportion to the somewhat economic improvement since the collapse of yeah. the USSR, do you see a, a less receptivity to the to the gospel as the economy has? has yeah, oh, I in the in the earlier days whenever there were no, there wasn't a centralized bank. The technology was you know way behind the times and. Uh, so even back then, I just kept, I was trying to warn the Ukrainian people that the centralized banking system will come and they will try to enslave you with debt. Don't go into debt. And whenever that thing came, I mean, they totally enslaved people. But, you know, with it came the availability of goods and which, you know, I it's nice. <laughs> I'll tell you, we had it both ways and I... You know, I, I, I do appreciate that, you know, having, going to a store and having something to buy. Um, but it is sad that the materialism has definitely crept in. The, it, it's, the materialism, I don't think, has been such a big hindrance as the, the Orthodox Church. I think that has had a... I think the, the economy in any um, country... When there's affluence, there's that automatic thing. But, but it's obvious that the government was searching for some type of a vehicle, some, some way to unify their people culturally. After the fall of the Soviet Union yes. and the Orthodox Church was the vehicle to unify the yes. people. Yes, yes. They were searching for that. And so uh, I had people in somewhat higher places and they did say that yes there were orders that came down from the top from the capital from Kiev telling the you know, the smaller towns that you do whatever you have to do to help the Orthodox Church and in particular the Russian Orthodox Church uh, those orders did come down and that also meant you hinder everybody else because once the Orthodox Church started they became very political they became very loud in their propaganda against anything West. And they started really harping. They, they, they used a psychological tool that I thought was very genius. Because the Slavic people, the former Soviet Union, they have a very collective mind. It's collectivity. It's, you know, communism. And so they have this, that pronoun, ours. Was, that, did that predate the yes. communism? Yes. Oh, yeah. It predated communism. It was a matter of survival, really. You, you read the old, you know, you read about their history and just because of, uh, you know, just the terrain, nature, roving, you know, bandits, stuff like that, sure. wolves, they would get everybody together into small towns. A lot in, in Russia in the old days, from what I understand, is just protection from wolves, you know, Peter and the wolf, those kind of things. And so right. people would, they called those little uh, towns their, their world, their mir. It was their Maliki Mir and their... Uh, so they had a collective mind already, and they had an identity that was very collective. They were somewhat isolationists, and the old leaders, you know, like Peter the Great, was 
one that would always try to uh, open them up, you know, because they were very, they're, they're right there at the crossroads, really. Ukraine is definitely there where East meets West. Western civilization and culture meets Eastern civilization and culture. And they say in Ukraine, Ukraine actually, the, the, the root word of Ukraine, krai, it kind of means, you can, you can interpret that to mean borderlands or the border, the krai. The, and, and so it is where East meets West, and uh, they say there's never been 100 years of peace in that piece of real estate. And so as far as back as history goes, you could never find. It's just a very war-torn area, which the people themselves are very collective, and they have, are very tolerant. They're very patient people because they have this idea of we can put up with anything. We just don't want war because the World War II is very fresh in their memories. They celebrate it every year. I've gone into towns where everybody tells me their story of surviving the famines, living through World War II. I got people in my church that survived, you know, Ravensburg concentration camps. Uh, got people who were taken captive by the Americans, actually. Hmm. And, uh, or they, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, they were liberated. They were taken captive, but yet they were liberated by the Americans. And uh, he, he would retell the story, and he said, I remember when the Americans came through and liberated us from the, the, the Nazi camp. He said, because whenever the Russians got the upper hand, they would, they would practice torture. I mean, they would torture. Ruthless. Ruthlessly yeah. torture those, those Germans. And he said, but the Americans were different. They wouldn't take part in any of it. And then I heard stories about American soldiers on a train where two girls said that we, we ended up on a train and we saw that they were a bunch of soldiers. And so they were kind of bracing to be raped is what they were preparing for. The because doors closed before they could get off. Because in all likelihood that would that's, have happened. That would have happened. Been. And they said, and they didn't, and then a soldier stood up to give them their seat and they were confused. They didn't know. And then they realized these aren't, these aren't these aren't our uniforms. And they said they were Americans and actually got up and gave them their seat, which was you know kind of unheard of. And so to me that's a testimony of the influence of the gospel on American culture. Yes, yes. Exactly. Yeah. So I was those were proud moments to be an American. Sure. I we were in a marketplace and I had two uh, Englishmen from uh, Great Britain. They came up and they heard when we were preaching on the street and they just said we just want to thank you. You're the first Americans we've ever met. And I said, thank us for what? He said, thank, thank you for liberating us. You know? And so... So the novelty of your accent, it gets you a hearing in some cases. And, and the, the fact that you're an American, which was, a, which was looked upon... It was a plus back it was, then. Yeah, it was positive. Yeah, yeah. But your association with the Baptists did not work in your favor, did no. it? <laughs> no. No, I actually, uh, the more I learned about the Baptists and the more I realized that we were very different and the more I learned about the development of their history over there. Um, you know, I want to speak as graciously as possible because they, those churches did suffer. They did pay a price. But at the same time, everybody suffered. 
and even people that were not Christians were arrested. All you had to do was just believe in the existence of God, and that was dangerous enough. Right. And all you had to do was just have enough you know, in, intelligence to see the manipulation and the propaganda, and that was... You know, so everybody suffered, and I think that some of the Baptists back then had a, a, a pride in their suffering, and even an air of superiority over American Christians at the time. I sensed it quite a bit. You know, and I'm not going to judge them or criticize them, but they were very manipulated by the KGB. And I, I read a book. I loaned it out, and whoever it was didn't replace, didn't return it. I wish I had it because I haven't been able to find it, but it gave uh, even names, addresses, it gave the dates, it gave the when they were arrested, where they were arrested, which prison camp they went to. And, and this historian there, he, he outlined and he said that the, the Stundists, Stundi, which means the hourlies, they, they were German Protestants that were settled in there during the, all of the, they, they went there for sanctuary under Catherine the Great. And so you do still to this day find pockets in small towns of Germans. And some of them were Lutherans and some of them were the Stundists. And the Stundi were the, um, their, their busy lives only allowed them so much time. And so they, they would have church service for one hour. And so they were called the hourly, which what a Stundist means. They go to church for one hour, you know, and they get all the, get, it, get it done. <laughs> and uh, the Russian synodal text was translated. It was translated under the edict of a king. It was translated predominantly by the Russian Orthodox Church. I was told, but I haven't been able to verify, that there were um, some Baptists that were also involved in that, and they took it from the old Slavonic language and put it into a language that <clears throat> is understood. And so that is the only uh, account of a real revival that I've ever heard breaking out in the former Soviet Union. And they said that um, even after the Bolshevik Revolution, when the Orthodox Church was, was struggling with the new powers that be, and the Communists hadn't yet really gotten things under their thumb, the Baptists then said that those were their golden years. They said the first 10 years of communism were the best years they'd ever had because the communists hadn't yet organized, hadn't yet really fully, you know, uh, were able to implement what they were planning, and yet the Orthodox Church was not there to uh, to stop the moving of the Holy Spirit, and so there was accounts of lots of revivals and, and, and aristocrats meeting with the peasants and churches and springing up all over the place as a result of the of the synodal text being released. Wow. Um, so then. After that, after the communists got the, the uh, Orthodox Church under their thumb, then they went after everybody else. And, and I, the way I understand it is time kind of culminated in around, I, I, I think it was after or around World War II. And that is when, maybe prior, but it was definitely prior. Yeah, they had already tried to make everybody register. All of these religious groups had to register, and then it was just a dangerous time to be a Christian. And then by about the 1960s is when the unregistered movement started. But pretty much the what they what they termed the Yechebe, 
the Evangelical Christian Baptist Union, or a union of Evangelical Christian Baptists, it, it took a while for me to understand it because they had the name Baptist, but really at that time, not today, but at that time, the name Baptist pretty much was synonymous with just being a Protestant. It meant that you weren't a Catholic. Non-Orthodox. You were non-Orthodox. You were not Jewish, and you were not Catholic. Okay. So that and so everybody was under the Baptist, you know, umbrella. Did you encounter when you entered? Did you encounter any believers of that with that background that had been repressed during under communism? Yeah, yeah, we did. I met guys that had been sent to the prisons, got out. Yeah, they were very respected men, but those exa- but those were exactly the men that the KGB wanted. Uh, they would arrest them, they would manipulate them, they would arrest them for a time, and then say, "Hey, look, you can preach, but you just have to work with us." And so, the larger the church, the more the control. Wow. And they would actually have in the larger churches, they would have a booth where the KGB agent would sit there and monitor the church services. And if ever a young man was fiery and he was full of the Holy Spirit and people were getting saved, they'd call the pastor on the carpet and say, you need to keep that young man in check. Um, anybody that got baptized, they had to report you know, where, where they worked, their family members, everything. And then there was also later on a teaching that the Baptist Union to this day, a lot of them, still practice is that you can't really be baptized until you're 18 years old. And it was really... A KGB thing because it was you know they, they they can't become members of the church unless they're adults and so whenever you join salvation with baptism in any in any degree of understanding uh, to many people still to this day I think that they they equate their baptism with their salvation and so you can lose salvation baptismal regeneration Acts two thirty eight it was just a whole smorgasbord of problems and I thought about it. I had a lot of invitations to work with them and the more I, I, I prayed about it it was the 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 Lord said you cannot put new wine in old bottles and I just that was enough for me to realize I need to just start and just do pioneer missions sure and do our own thing since but since that time you'd say the greatest opposition Open oppositions come from the Orthodox Church. It's a it's yes, a absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You had also mentioned, however, that that there are some advantages in some sense in terms of the. I don't even know if it, perhaps that collectivistic mindset is transferable for someone who's regenerate. Yes, um, yes, because when someone's genuinely saved in a setting like that. With they're leaving that orthodox background, they're not just leaving it. They're being they're given the boot like they're they're cut off, right? They are, yeah, they and, are. And so, they're they're when they unite with that local church, it's yes. much it's it's not a casual arrangement as no. it so often is no. in the states. No, no, it's not. That's 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 something that I miss. <laughs> I really do miss that. Um, I mean, you see, you see it in in certain churches across our country here where um, they just they've reached a certain level of maturity and then that those are the you know the, the what do you call it um, kindred spirits I guess yeah. if you will there's congregations that are just their hearts are knit together in, in in the work of the gospel and they're they're just it's family you know and then there's others that you know they everybody shows up for church on Sunday and then five minutes later I mean the, the church is empty 
and but our our people we're we're family and they 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 testify a lot to that very thing they were just like you know we feel closer to our brothers and sisters in Christ here in church than we do you know our own flesh and blood and uh, because they don't understand us you know that we love the Lord and we put him first and they don't understand that so yeah so the, the, the good side of that collectivism is that it, it produces a, uh, a very tight-knit church family. Thank you again for tuning into the program. I trust that Brother Rue's testimony of the work of God in his life to get him to the field of Ukraine and to work through him for the salvation of sinners and discipleship of believers has been a blessing. Please tune in next time for the second installment of this interview. In part two, Brother Rue and I discuss biblical missions, methods, and church planting principles. It's a really thought-provoking exchange that I hope you'll avail yourself to. If you've enjoyed the program today, you can subscribe to this program in a variety of podcasting apps, rate or review the program wherever you may be listening, or recommend the program to others. I always welcome your feedback. You can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond.